0: We're going to uh, continue in like a little mini series here. Matt preached a wonderful message last week on parenting, if you remember. And uh, and it really really did a number on folks and uh, and and so I'm 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 glad that he did that. He talked about a better future, and I want to continue in that. And I want to speak this morning about creating a spiritual legacy. And actually, next week, uh, one of one of one of our overseers here at the church, Mark Harrell, Some of you may know him, some of you may not. But he'll be here next week speaking. He's he, he's pastored a church for 35 years, and actually just uh, stepped down, and it's kind of a kind of doing, doing some, some other things and overseeing some pastors and stuff like that, but he's going to be here next week to speak sort of in the same vein, and he's probably got a lot more wisdom in the area that I, I, I do, so it'll be a good time to come next week as well. But if you have a Bible, I'm going to read a lot of Scripture, as I sometimes do. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to start at verse 1, and we will work through that. Now, before I read this, what I want us to do, I just want us to pray together over the word this morning as you're turning your Bibles, And I want us to pray for the, the folks that have been affected specifically this week. A lot of people have been really, really hurt and having a hard time. But, man, I just can't, I can't help but sense even what, what, uh, what Caitlin was saying this morning, that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And I tell you, I, we have a God that even when floodwaters rise, he's right there with us in the midst of it. And I know that he is sending people with his heart to people in need in various ways. And and I'm just so grateful that that's how God moves. That's how God works. That when people get hit and people are in need, God sends people with his heart to, to bring love and care and affection and meet needs of people. So let's just pray for those folks this morning. Let's pray a word together. But Father, we thank you so much for your presence that's here with us this morning. God, we thank you for your hand that guides us, Lord, even when we are in desperate situations. And, Father, for the people that have been affected with all of this damage, Lord, there's been loss of life, there's been devastation, loss of homes, and, and so many different things that have happened just in this past week. But, Father, we pray that you would send forth your spirit to do the work that only you can do in restoration, in salvation, in redemption, in recovery, in supplying the needs of these people. God, we know that you are still at work. And in the midst of the darkest times of some folks' lives, God, we know that there's an open door for them to turn to you, Jesus, and see your goodness and see your salvation and find a hope that goes beyond the loss and the suffering that we face in this life. And so, Lord, we just pray for the affected families and the affected folks. And and Father, even as we uncover your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would minister to each heart, each mind, and we'd be transformed into the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, here's what it says. Now don't go to sleep on me. This is going to be a little bit lengthy. You ready? These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you were crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel... "'Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. "'Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. "'When the Lord your God brings you into the land, "'he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.' to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And His anger will burn against you and He will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees He has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight. So that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised an oath to your ancestors. Thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. And in the future, notice this, in the future when your son asks you what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land He promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as He has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Take a big deep breath. Praise God. Amen. So here's the thing, here's the reason I'm reading this. Matt read this last week, and as I'm sitting there listening to what he's preaching, it was almost like the Lord impressed upon me. I, I need you to read Deuteronomy 6 because there's a model there for what I wanted to do with Israel, and it's is still in place as far as what I need you to do with your children to make a better future. Because God is thinking generationally. And if you read this passage of Scripture, it was it was so central to the Jewish people. It was called the Shema. As a matter of fact, whenever they asked Jesus, hey, what is the greatest commandment? He quoted Deuteronomy 6. Whenever he was tempted by Satan himself, he goes to Deuteronomy 6, he goes to Deuteronomy 8 because there was a foundation there for the principles of God that he gave to his people and said, this is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to do. And if you can do these things, you're going to flourish. You're going to experience my blessing. You're going to see goodness in the land. And not only your children, but your children's children are just going to continue to increase in this blessing that I want for your life. And it was going to be passed down from generation to generation. The problem is, is that when God warned them, He also told them that there was going to be a temptation to turn to the false gods of the nations that were around them and build altars to false gods. And that's what they would do. And so God would come in and He would make sure, hey, don't build an altar to false gods so that your kids forget and don't know them anymore. Matter of fact, what you need to do is you need to make sure that you're building altars of true worship in your home so that your children know the God that you worship and your children are not confused as to which God they are worshiping, that there are clear signs on your doorposts, in your home. Everywhere they look, they need to see in your life and in your home signs that mark this is the one true God, this is who He is, this is His nature, this is His character, and this is the one that we bow our knee to and worship. And so here's the thing, when you read a passage like this in the Old Testament, you can read that and you can feel the burden of it. I don't know if you felt like the the, the burden of some of the Old Testament passages, because there was a burden. They were under a covenant that stipulated that they had to obey all of the commands of God, and if they did not obey in one point, then the curses would come upon them. And he said, choose this day what you're going to do, life or death, blessing or curse. If you obey me, then you're, th- that will be your righteousness, and if you do not, you're going to experience destruction because you have not followed the Lord your God. Now, here's what I love, and here's something that you got to understand, and something that I think we have to understand as we're raising the next generation, and we're working through parenting is that you can never disconnect the Old Testament from Jesus. You can never disconnect your life from Jesus. Christianity and even the Bible is not a book of rules that if you follow, you're going to be blessed, and if you don't follow, you're going to be cursed. Christianity is about a covenant that God made with the people that was ultimately bringing them to Jesus so that they could experience salvation. What does that mean? That means that even though... God gave them that covenant. He said, you go obey, everything's going to be good. You disobey, it's not going to be good. Guess what? Spoiler alert, spoiler alert nobody obeyed. But God loves us so much, and this is the gospel. God loves us so much that he sent his only son to be sinless, to live the perfect life, to be the only human being to ever obey the laws perfectly, but to go to the cross and in our place take the punishment as if He had broken all of the laws. And in doing so, He offered us grace and mercy so that we could repent and no longer live under the bondage of trying to obey in order to get blessing. God says when you step into Christ, you're already blessed and I'll give you a transformed heart so that naturally you will begin to obey obey out of a relationship with me. I love the fact that in the gospel I'm not trying to obey God in order to earn blessings. I'm obeying God because I'm flowing from a place of blessing in Christ Jesus. I know I'm blessed not because of what I've done but because of what Jesus has done and that so transforms my heart that I want to live in obedience to God. So we function from a place of blessing and not to earn blessings. You can't earn salvation. You can't earn blessing. Jesus did that for you on the cross, and now you're walking with Him in a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for you. And so here's the thing. The good news about parenting, see, is that it's not separated from Jesus either because parenting is gospel ministry. And this is something that I've had to learn. Amen? I was praying about this and praying about, uh, you know, Matt and his situation. I remember whenever we first brought Naomi home, and, you know, there were days that I'd spend, and, 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 and I, you know, I talked about this before, but when you first have a baby, I don't know, we, we ded- dedicate a lot of babies. How many of y'all's babies, when they go number two, they blow out up their back? <laughs> that happened to me so many times. Like, when I, when I got saved, one of the first things that the Lord dealt with with me was, like, deep anger and rage, And I had that under check, man, forever. And there was about three diapers that just blew plum out on me in one day. And I had poop everywhere. And I remember something rose up in me and I felt that rage, but I didn't want my little baby to see it. And I grabbed that diaper and threw it up against the wall and the thing went poof and exploded. And that's when the Lord spoke to me and said, Son, you need some patience. You need a little bit of grace. You need a little bit of mercy. This is gospel ministry. And then as kids grow up, it gets a little bit crazier. I mean, just the other day, we had a few kids running around outside, and one kid just stripped down naked and tried to jump in a pool across the road, and then Naomi's face down in a puddle just licking it. And and I'm thinking, I don't know what we're supposed to do here. Like, does anybody got any tips? Um, So, you know, so, so my best parenting tip is that parenting is gospel ministry. As I'm thinking through this, the Lord said, Here's some good scripture for you, Clay, on parenting. And He took me to these verses in Titus, and it's not, a, I thought, Lord, this isn't even about parenting. But notice this He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various desires and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Now, if that ain't some little kids, I don't know what is. Like, that, they, they are foolish, disobedient, and deceived. They serve various desires and pleasures. They live in malice and envy and often I mean, they're envious of what? I want that. I don't, no, I want it. And then they, they're hateful and they hate one another. Amen. And I'm thinking, that's children right there. But notice this. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And here's the thing. When we have an understanding of the gospel and how our Heavenly Father moves toward us... In love and in grace and in mercy, I was once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts, lusts and pleasures. But when the kindness and love of God, my Savior, toward me showed up and my Father moved toward me in love and began to bring correction and direction and their kindness of God that brought me to a place of repentance, it wasn't me just obeying out of obligation. I began to receive a transformed heart. And when you see your children this way and you you, you fulfilling the role literally as a Father or a mother in the place of our heavenly father to, to bring about his loving authority, his loving grace, and his mercy, you start to see these opportunities of them being just absolutely crazy. Because if anybody in here has a good child and a perfect child, go ahead and raise your hand. I won't talk to you after service. Because you're all children. Children are rough, you know what I'm saying? They're in this process. Guess what? They got a fallen nature. They need a relationship with the Lord just like us. And there needs to be authority, but I need you to understand this. A a parent can give much more mercy to their child and be willing to understand their need for grace and love in their most broken areas when they themselves understand how much mercy they need from the Lord. And not only that, you need to understand that, that, that a child needs law because God demonstrates this. What does God do? He says that the law was a schoolmaster until it led us to Christ. In other words, you as an authority figure in your child's life, you give law to your children that they ought to know you don't break this law. But you cannot expect the law to do what only grace can do. Law cannot transform your child. Rules cannot transform your child. But when those laws lead them to a place where they come to the grace of God, their heart will be transformed, and then they will be able to understand this is why the law is given, this is why the law is good. But I need Jesus just like my mommy and daddy so that I can actually obey and adhere to what good things God has given me to do. Amen. So we can't expect the law to do what only grace can accomplish. And here's the thing. The goal of parenting is not control of behavior. It is heart change and life change. And if only God can change my heart, how can I expect myself to change my child's heart? Ultimately, I'm not trying to control my child. I'm trying to lead my child into an understanding of God's grace. I give them God's law, but I also lead them to a place of God's grace and represent His authority and His mercy to them and look at the chaos of the life that they have. We can't expect them to be flawless. So when we have those situations where they do mess up and they will, it is an opportunity for us to represent God's mercy, God's grace, God's correction, God's direction, and God's guidance in those moments. And we should look for those divine opportunities because we're blessed to have them as people who know Jesus Christ, amen? So it's, it's gospel ministry, but here's the thing. When we talk about leaving a spiritual legacy, if we actually look back at our homes, we need to understand that we need to tear down some altars of worship in our life and we need to build up some new ones. Because if I were to ask you, you know, what comes up in your heart when you think about your own home as a child? What comes up in your own heart when you think about your home as a child? I talked with a group of men just this past week, and we all talked about our home life as as children, and people talked about their parents. And you know, it's a rare situation. I know some people that do, no doubt, but it's a rare situation that somebody says, you know what, my home life was amazing, my dad was awesome. My mom, was. A, they loved the Lord, and I mean, it was, just, it was just heaven on earth when we were in our home. I know some people who would say that. I do know some people. Because for some people, your home life was amazing. It was a place of hope. It was a place of joy and expectation, like your family had a culture. You all had traditions. And so you were just looking forward to build your own family so that you can let them meet their grandparents and just continue that legacy of, of spiritual devotion to God and this love and care. But then most people honestly experience broken homes. They don't even talk to their parents. Maybe their parent wasn't even there. Maybe they didn't have a dad that was even there. Maybe their dad was an alcoholic. Maybe their parents got divorced when they were young. Maybe they experienced abuse and violence and the home was a place of deep pain for them. And oftentimes, without our even knowing it, we carry what happened to us in our childhood over into our own homes. And some of the things that we dislike worst about ourselves are things that we actually inherited from our parents that we said, we'll never be like that. And we end up just the same way. This is kind of what the Bible talks about. When it talks about generational curses, that these things are handed down from generation to generation. And without Jesus in our life and tearing down some false altars of worship and building some new ones in our home, a lot of times we get enslaved to these cycles and patterns of sinful behavior and it affects our children. So family shapes us in disproportionate ways, doesn't it? When, I, when I, I used to counsel a lot of addicts and still do, people that are recovering from addiction, and oftentimes we don't even talk about addiction. We go back to the childhood and we want to know what happened to you when you were a child. What did you go through? What trauma did you experience? There's often abuse. There's often this, this need for affirmation. There's, there's this need to numb some pain that was in their life. There's unforgiveness. There's all these things that they've not dealt with because they were raised in a broken home. Family shapes us in disproportionate ways. I was talking to a lady that I talk to regularly. She's a counselor. Uh, she deals in, and she's a psychiatrist. And she made this statement. And I asked her about it. She actually sent this over to me the other day. And she said this one time. And I wanted to know exactly what she said. But she said this: Children's values are formed between four and eight years old. And first, just stop about. Think about that sentence. Children's values are formed between 4 and 8 years old. That means that the bedrock and foundation of what they believe is good and evil, right and wrong, is formed between the ages of 4 and 8. doesn't mean it can't change, but it means that the the, the bedrock and the foundation of what they believe is good and evil is formed between the ages of 4 and 8 years old. Their personality is formed by age 12 and rarely changed after that. When she told me that, I was like, woman, you better not say that to me. I know a God. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I was like, but but then I think about my own life, and I realize that here's the thing. Who I am, Jesus has changed me drastically. But there are parts of me that still need deep work because of how I was formed as a child. You understand that? That I've been saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has changed my life. But guess what? There's some still deep character flaws in me. And I have to revisit my past regularly to walk through forgiveness and bitterness and pain and things that happened to me that I've tried to shove under because there's still things that are flowing out of my life, negative aspects of my character that are rooted in the age when I was just a boy. And most of the people I speak with, it's the exact same situation. And she said, so what they are living, seeing, and being taught during those ages are crucial to their formation as a human being. So how essential is it about, you know, so a lot of times we think, well, you know, we'll wait until our kids get about 18, then we'll teach them about Jesus. Too late. This is why Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. What they're saying is that there is intentional intentional discipleship and training and instruction for the child that once it gets deep-rooted into their system and into their psyche and they see habits and patterns of behavior and worship from their parents and reading of Scripture and all of these things and prayers, it gets in them between the ages of 4 and 8 and it shapes their values that even if they become a teenager and get wild for a little bit and sow some wild oats, because they have that bedrock and foundation, they will come back because it's been built into them. And so when we talk about discipling the next generation and leaving a spiritual legacy, we're talking about pouring into some young children, some babies, and training them up in the way that they should go. You know the stats, Matt shared it last week, that 70% of kids who are raised in an evangelical home that go to church regularly fall away from faith in their 20s. He shared that stat last week. But do you know that the statistics say that the that the 30% usually that do not fall away, the back majority of them went through intentional discipleship as a child. There was intentional discipleship in the home. The ones that fell away had mostly a nominal Christian life. They had a home that really didn't participate in godly activities, but they still went to church on Sunday. But the ones who had discipleship that took place in the home, and there was reading of scripture, there was worship, there was prayer in the home, there was intentional discipleship in the home, and within that 30%, the majority of them, they did not fall away from faith. So the point is, is it's one thing to go to church, it's one thing to take your kids to church. You need to do it. You still got a better chance of your kid growing up and being a decent human being if you take them to church, no doubt. But church needs to bleed over into your home and you need to build an altar of worship in your house. And that's where the rubber meets the road. We've even talked about, we talked about, you know, I've talked to so many people whose parents were pastors or missionaries, and their, par- their parents would be the best, out in public, buddy. They'd serve and minister and do it. But in the home, they were jerks. Amen. In the home, they weren't pastoral at all. They were barely even there. They spent more time ministering to other people than they did their own kids. And a lot of times, pastors' kids grow up some of the wildest people. Amen. Not my kids, y'all. Amen. I I'm <laughs> claiming that for the Lord right now. Because here's the thing. You cannot disconnect your religious life from your home life. If it does not work in the home, it's not working. If it doesn't move, if what you do here on Sunday morning doesn't affect your home life, it doesn't work. It's not real. It's not impacting your life. If it doesn't impact your children's life, then we need to get to the root of what's really going through. Some stats. I read this week that if your parents lie to you as a child, it can create a suspicion in your heart as you grow old. So many people that struggle with a good image of God and God being good and whether or not God will treat them good, it's because in their home their parents lied to them and they have a suspicious view of God now. Also, the stat said, if your mom is stressed when you are young, it is scientifically shown that you will not be as good at math and many other sciences. If your mom's just simply stressed in the home. It also said if your parents share their feelings and are vulnerable with you, if your parents are willing to apologize when they make mistakes, if your parents are willing to say, Look, man, I messed up and and here's the struggle that I, and they're open with their issues, it lowers the rate of divorce later in life. That's powerful. So if we're truly going to see a move of God, here's the thing. If we're truly going to see a move of God, if we truly are a city of hope and we believe in transforming a community, it doesn't happen because we call revival services and have more church. It happens when our church moves into our homes and we begin to disciple and raise our children intentionally as a mother and father should. Amen. Amen. Yes. So it's so important that we understand this system because we can get caught up in religious cycles and systems of behavior. And if we miss this point of, as a family, discipling our families and our children, then we will miss the boat and we will raise a generation of religious people who went to church but are wilder than Comanches outside of it. Amen. And that's what happens so often. And so how do I leave a spiritual legacy to my children and the children of this church? I remember whenever I was a little boy, I don't know if your kids do this, but I act like I'm sick all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like every Tuesday, I would be like, oh, I got a tummy ache. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and, and you know what? I had, I, had, I had a couple of ladies. One, one, one woman was Gert. This woman was born in She was a black woman born in 1912. If she was still alive today, she'd be 110 years old. And that woman took care of me from the time I was a little baby. She was my babysitter. And so I, when I knew, I said I had a tummy ache. My mom had to go to work, you know, early in the morning, about 7.30. So she would drop me off at Gert's at about 7, you know, early in the morning. And, and Gert would be in the kitchen making, making coffee and, and pouring coffee. And so she'd give me a little coffee at about six years old, you know what I'm saying? And we would have coffee and bacon. And I've been a coffee addict ever since. <laughs> have not been able to break it. Uh, but, man, I, we would pour, and I'd watch her, she'd pour the coffee in the saucer, you know, and I'd just sit there, and I'd sip it out of my saucer. But that whole morning, what I know, so so no matter what, if I came in and she was in devotions, I didn't even know, at that point, I didn't even know what she was doing. But she had a little devotional, and it was an upper room devotional. And every morning if I came in, she'd be reading that devotional and going through it. And then with me sitting there, it didn't stop her. Just because I was in the room did not stop her from her devotion to the Lord. And I would sit there with my eyes open just sipping coffee and watching her. And she would just sit there and mumble prayers out with me sitting at the table with her. And I think I never really realized how that formed me until later on in life because Gert knew what kind of boy I ended up growing up to be and I didn't know I had some rough patches you know I mean I had some I was a good boy for the most part but I had some rough patches and I remember when I got saved I got saved and Gert died about a year later and when I was sitting up with her at her deathbed right before she passed she looked at me took me by the hand and she said there's no going back now she was so happy because I know that woman had been praying for me. But my point is this, even the small things, the small commitments that you make that you, as a parent or even as an aunt or an uncle or just a family friend, the small commitments that you make that children see you doing on a regular basis, you don't know the seed that's being sown into their heart. You don't know the impact you're having, having with a small prayer in the morning. You don't know the impact you're having when your children see you with a Bible open instead of watching garbage on TV all the time. You don't know the impact that you're having when you make these small commitments to God. And see, this is what Deuteronomy 6 is saying because it is a hinge moment. And they're saying, God is saying, if you can get this part right, you're going to see generations of legacy and blessing. You're going to see generations that are raised up and built up in God and take on the darkness of this world and are able to overcome it. He's saying this is a hinge moment. And God reaffirms His covenant and His heart. God's heart is not for destruction, y'all. I don't know if you realize this or not. God's heart is revealed throughout the Bible, and it is most revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. And His Son says, I've not come to to bring death and destruction, but I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He wants to see generational blessing flow down from line to line, but in order for us to see this generational blessing in our families and in our church, we have to break some things off from our past, and we've got to build some new altars. And so number one, I want to give you some things we need to break off, just a couple of things, but number one in this scripture is spiritual complacency. Spiritual complacency. See, in Deuteronomy 6, what we just read, verse 10, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, here's the verse, be careful that you do not forget the Lord, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What he's saying, God is saying, is that physical prosperity can numb us into spiritual apathy. Do you ever remember being desperate for God? I'm talking about desperate. I remember not having enough money to get married. I remember having such addictions that I didn't know how my life. I was thinking, you know what, if I'm going to live like this the rest of my life, I'd rather end it. I remember being so desperate that I moved into a place where I didn't eat. There are pictures of me where I was about 135 pounds because I was praying and fasting because I was desperate for God, desperate for God. My ministry was going nowhere, and then all of a sudden, you get a little bit of money. You get married. Things are going well. Your church starts to grow. It's easy to set back and no longer be desperate. Some of y'all, you're praying for a job, you're praying for a family, you see some answered prayers, things are going well in life. Man, we're blessed. And there's no longer any desperation for the Lord and you just sit back and start to eat some ice cream and chill out. And that desperation moves and you slip into this place of complacency. Maybe you even have a sense of entitlement that the Lord just owes that to you. He just owes it to bless your family. We don't have to be desperate for the Lord. We're functioning under the blessing. Look at all these things we've got. Look at how we've been blessed. It's amazing how only... Here's the thing about it. You know, we live as people that that, that whenever we are walking in blessing, man, we almost never even turn our hearts to the Lord. It takes devastation and destruction for us to call upon His name. And this is what He's saying. He's saying, I'm not looking for a people that are only going to cry out to me when bad stuff happens. I'm looking for a people that function in the blessing and are still desperate for my presence. I'm looking for a people who are flourishing and seeing my blessing, but they never lose their desperation for my presence and my power and everything that I have to offer them. And even when they have the blessing, they're so desperate because they say, Lord, we don't want the physical things. We want you. And he says, that's the kind of desperation I want, and you can't slip into this spiritual complacency because that's what happened with Israel. You know, I read a stat this week that 70% of families that acquire wealth end up losing it by the second generation and ninety percent of families that acquire wealth end up losing it by the third generation And sociologists say that the reason they lose the wealth is because somebody is desperate in the beginning of that family line and they get together the character and and the wisdom, whether it be financial wisdom or leadership wisdom, they build skills, they they have vision, and they go out and they earn the wealth, but then when they, they, they raise their children up, they don't pass down the disciplines and the wisdom to get that and their children just receive the blessing walk in it but they do not continue the legacy of having the vision to pursue desperation for those things now they don't do that in spiritual terms but I'm saying that the book of Judges actually teaches that the same thing happens spiritually that they would walk in the blessing of the Lord and God would raise up a judge and there'd be deliverance and then all of a sudden it says they would they would walk in that blessing and all of a sudden the next generation A new generation would be raised up that knew not the Lord, neither did they know the works that He had done for Israel. Somewhere along the way, they received the blessing and forgot to tell the story to their kids. They said, just enjoy this blessing, children. Don't be desperate for the Lord. We've got it made now. But I'm telling you, the greatest thing that you can teach your child is to be desperate for God, desperate for Jesus. Not to seek Him for the stuff that He gives, but to seek Him for who He is. There was a group called the Moravians back in the 1700s. And this guy named Nicholas Zinzendorf, I was reading about this guy in Germany, and he passed by this little place called Hernhut. And he, he started a prayer movement. And in this prayer movement, that's a nice name in it, Hernhut. He, he started this prayer movement... And in the prayer movement, it started and they would get up in the mornings and they'd start singing songs outside to wake everybody up. They'd all come together in the town and begin to worship and pray together. They'd meet again at noon and pray together. And then they'd meet again before they went to bed and pray together. And prayer was going on around the clock, 24-7. The entire community came to know Jesus. And the revival, a revival broke out and they kept a prayer movement going 24 hours a day for 100 years. Somewhere along the way when this first started, like you know I probably would do myself, somebody said, you know, this is great, man. Everybody's on fire for Jesus, but don't you think we should calm down a little bit? Like this is a little bit more than probably what we need. Maybe we should just chill out a little bit. And the statement that I read that he made was amazing. He says, we're not doing this because we are lukewarm. We're doing this to fend off lukewarmness. He's saying, it ain't that we're lukewarm is the reason. Let's not wait till we get lukewarm to turn on the thermometer, to turn on the heat for the Lord. Let's maintain a spiritual fire and a passion for the Lord. And the place where we've got to keep the fire burning the most is in our homes, in our personal devotion to the Lord. Because we can get complacent in our own walk, and especially as parents. We can say, well, they got it taken care of back here in kids' church. Matt Langdon's got it taken care of with the youth. And we can just relinquish our responsibilities. Well, at my my, my kid's school right now, it ain't that wild. I mean, we got a principal who's a Christian and they pray. I'm not worried about their education. Well, you need to be. You need to be worried about what's going on and do not get complacent as a parent and hand off your responsibility. We've got to break off spiritual complacency and tend the fire of our hearts. Secondly, the thing we need to break off is spiritual compromise. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, it said, Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. I know that's strong language, but I've given you uh, an illustration before of can you imagine if your husband's in here and you you go out to work one day and you come home and at your table eating your food, playing with your kids is another man. Would you just say, oh, sorry to interrupt. (laughs) No, you would not. You would burn with a red-hot jealousy because that's your family, those are your kids, and God burns with a red-hot jealousy because you are the object of His love and affection. And He knows that if you turn away to anything other than Him, it will be your destruction. It's not that He wants to hurt you or wants to damage you. He understands that if you move away from Him, you are destroying yourself. He has to do nothing. And so he burns with a jealousy because he knows if you worship anything other than him that is it's going to damage you because he is your creator. He is your designer and he is jealous over you with a godly jealousy and they give this this commandment. He says this. Don't turn to these other gods. And the problem was God gave the commandment. He said, hey, don't make any graven images or any other idols because he knew if they started to build something that they thought looked like God, it would move them away from the one true God. And the nations around them had all of these idols and all of these images. And here's what they would do. Oftentimes the nations, history says, that they would have parades for these false gods. And so they'd be passing through and the people of Israel would look in on these parades and, man, they'd be dancing and partying. There's a lot of times alcohol involved. There was, there was spiritual promiscuity or sexual promiscuity involved. And just generally people getting wild as, an, as, a, as a thing of worship to this false god and God tells them when you see that parade, you're liable to be enticed and pulled away to worship that god because of what you think that that god offers you. And sometimes we see these parades in our own life going on. Sometimes we see these, these things going on that begin to draw us away. And when we talk about worldliness as a church, man, people get, they just don't even like it anymore. You talk about holiness and worldliness and not being worldly, it's like, man, what is this, 1972? We're just trying to be relevant, which is my least favorite word right now in history. Because sometimes in an effort to be relevant, the church begins to move into this place where we build other altars at other false gods because we see these parades of the world moving in a direction and it is enticing you with a vision of the good life that you think is somehow better than what God is going to offer you. And they had this constant enticement of the world pulling at them and drawing at them and trying to teach them what they should do with their time, trying to teach them what they should do with their money, trying to teach them how they should view sexuality, trying to teach them how, how they should raise their children and what they should teach their children to do and what they should value. And all of these things are constantly pulling at us and he's saying, do not go after these other gods and have spiritual compromise in your heart because if you do, You're going to line up and you're going to follow the spirit of the age and be led away from God altogether. And the key is is you can tell as a family where your altar truly is, where your place of worship truly is because you're willing to sacrifice for it. Your kids will see more than anything what mommy and daddy are willing to sacrifice for What are they willing to give their time to, their energy? What are they willing to let hurt them or cost them something in order to go after it with a passion? They will see that, and it will form their values because we are built on a system of sacrifice. It's who we are as a people. What we worship, we sacrifice for. And he's saying don't be pulled away and sacrifice for the world's values because your kids are going to pick up on everything. They pick up everything from you. How many of y'all you said something crazy and then you find out your kids said it too? Amen. They're going to pick up everything. that you. So we need to guard against these things. We have to guard our, our, what we're watching. We have to guard our children's devices, what they're watching on television. We have to look at the friendships and the relationships. And it doesn't mean that we're helicopter parents, but it does mean that we are engaged. We're having conversations and we're getting to know our children so that they are open with us about what's going on. Say, well, I don't want to push into into my child's life too much, and I don't want to put too much on them, and we don't want to force Christianity down their throat. Let me tell you something. This world is forcing every other thing down their throats. If you don't force Christianity down it, something else is going to force something else down it. And it is your job and your responsibility to make sure that they grow up knowing God. So my question is, is there anything that has gotten into your life that the culture tolerates but you know that God doesn't because if that is in your home and in your home you're tolerating things and you have sacrificial altars to false gods so to speak it's contaminating your home and your children are picking up on it and the next generation will have to tear down altars that you now have built up in your life but if you will tear down this altar in order to build one for your children and the generation to come something will change so let me give you a couple things that we must build And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. But number one, we have to build a compelling vision of God. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Basically, he's just saying, listen, listen, that this, this, you need to hear about this God that we are talking about because this God is unlike any of the other false gods that are around us. And we need to create a compelling vision of God. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about who we are. And my question is, is that how could anybody... We're talking about Jesus, right? We're talking about the man who showed up on the scene who is the Logos that became flesh. He's the God who spoke the world into existence, who spoke you and I into existence. He's the God that showed up in the flesh, and when storms rose, he spoke peace to them, and they stopped. When demons manifested in people, they cried out and said, We know who you are. You're the Holy One of Israel. And he would speak a word, and the the torment that was on that person's life would flee. He's the same man that that came into a little girl when she was dead and said, little girl, I say, arise. And the little girl came back to life. He healed sickness and disease, and he died on the cross for us so that we could have eternal life in a completely restored world that is infused with God and heaven himself, and somehow we've made that boring. You understand what I'm saying? This Jesus... who who is such a perfect man. This Jesus who holds the tension of conviction and compassion like anybody else. Jesus held higher standards and higher conviction and higher morality than anybody, but yet he had the greatest amount of compassion for those who struggled to keep those convictions. And in our world, what we have is honestly a lot of people that have convictions but no compassion, and a lot of people that have compassion but no convictions. And Jesus held those things, those two things perfectly in tension. And here's the thing. We've got to make our children not just behave and follow good moral principles. We have to cast a compelling vision of who God is so that they fall in love with this man, Jesus. Amen? It's so essential that we make sure that they understand that there's nobody like Jesus and we give them a compelling vision of who He is. When the miraculous happens, sit down and tell your children, When prayers are answered, sit down and tell your children. Make sure that they understand this. You know, I I know I've heard so many stories about pastors that I talk with, about how their kids grow up hating the church, and I'm thinking to myself, how is this possible? Because the church that I know are the most generous people, the most loving people who go out of their way to actually help me and bless me and pray for me and let me know that they care about me, and I'm going to let my kids know that there's nothing greater than being a part of the family of God. There's nothing greater than knowing that you've got a church that's going to back you up and love you in th- thick and thin through the hardest of times and that are going to be there to support you. My kids ain't going to hate the church. They're going to love it because they're going to see the people of God as they're called to be. Yeah, there's some ups and downs. There's some hurts. There's some hardships. But with Christ, we learn to forgive and we will learn to grow as a family. We give them a compelling vision of who God really is. Secondly, we've got to build a vision of discipleship. And and they had such a holistic vision of discipleship. In Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 8, it says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children. That word impress, it means to teach diligently or to sharpen an arrow. Imagine when you're teaching your kids, it's like you're sharpening an arrow because your intentions are to one day send that child into the darkest places to pierce the very heart of the enemy. You're sharpening an arrow when you teach your child who Jesus is and who they're called to be in Jesus and how they're blessed and how they're filled with the power of the Spirit. And you're putting Scripture in their heart. You're impressing this in their hearts. He says, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, Jews did this because they had a holistic, integrated practice of discipleship in their life. Put that picture up there that I had. So if if you were, even today, this is like a Jewish home today. If you walk into a Jewish home today, they have this, it's called a mezuzah. And they would take like this scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and other specific scriptures and they would pull it out and read it. Their children would memorize it. They'd fold it up and put it down in this little tube and when they walk out of the door, they touch it and when they touch it, all of that scripture comes flooding back to their mind because they know I'm leaving this house as a child of the living God. I'm leaving this house to represent who I know God has called me to be. I'm on mission for the one true God. And when they come home, they come home into a home that is filled with the very presence of God. It's a place where God himself dwells. And they come into a loving family who worships the one true God and they touch it on their way in. There were practices. I walked into Jeremy's uh, bathroom just the other day. And when I walked in, he had John 1-1 written on, on the bathroom mirror. And I looked at that, and he, and he, t- he told me about how, how Everett's been walking in and looking at those scriptures because he told him, Son, every time you go in the bathroom, just look up, read that scripture. And now Everett came in and quoted that verse of scripture to me. Why? They're writing it in their homes. They're saying, this is what we live by. This is the truth that we stand on. And they're making sure that it's a, they're reminded throughout their day until it gets in their psyche so that everything that they have going on in that day is flooded with the presence and the Word of God. This is what... The Jews were teaching their people. There was an ecosystem of discipleship. You know, as we, 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 we're, we're planning small groups right now. We're actually thinking through a lot of things. We're a bunch of young people with a bunch of babies for the most part. And we're trying to figure out how to do this. Amen. I mean, I, I'm not standing up here saying, I got it figured out, y'all. Follow me. Let's do this. I don't, I don't, I'm figuring this thing out. But I know we have a mandate from God to make sure that our children are not part of the 70%, that our children grow up and they are like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior that are shot out into the darkness of this world because they know the Word of God. They know how to tackle the subjects that culture is throwing at them because they were raised in homes that were willing to speak the hard truths whenever uncomfortable topics came up. And so we, we need to build this ecosystem of discipleship. But within our small groups, we're going to have a very specific thing where weekly we're going to have a podcast available. And within that, what you're discussing in your, in, in your small groups this semester coming up, we're going to have a little thing for you that you can do with your kids even. Maybe it's just a scripture verse that you read or, or write on a wall somewhere. But something where you are intentionally discipling your children, even if it's a small thing day after day after day. Amen. And so we want to do things like that. There's other things that we've been talking about. We've got something in our minds called Project Buffalo, but we, ain't, we have not un, unraveled that yet. But we want to initiate young men into a system of, of them being raised up so that they know what it means to be a young man and they're not self-initiating into this culture by having sex when they're 14 years old and getting hammered drunk at 12. You understand what I'm saying? We want them to know who they are in God at a young age so that they go through those formative years not having to sow their wild oats but being rooted and grounded in God. Now, don't get me wrong. Kids are going to be kids sometimes and they're going to fail. But guess what? We're going to be there to lovingly draw them back into the arms of the Father and say there's grace and mercy. That's not who you are and remind them of who they are. And so we want to start to build an eco- uh, ecosystem of discipleship around this specifically. And lastly... Things that we must build are a vision for spiritual legacy. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, it says, In the future, when your son asks you, What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? See, your children are going to raise up. Oh, why do we go to church like this? Why do we do small groups? Why do we have to be around these people that are so strange? And that preacher up there that's just so weird. Why do we do this? I mean, they don't even like the things that the world likes. All my friends are doing this. All their families do this. And you have an answer for them. Because we say, we don't build those altars out there in the world. We love those people. But we are on mission for those people. We don't adhere to the values of the world We are on mission to bring them into the values that we hold. And they're deeply rooted in this God and what he's done for us. He says, you're going to tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. So when they ask, why are we doing this? You say, it's time to tell a story. I'm going to tell you about how daddy grew up, where I was, and how God brought me out from bondage. I'm going to tell you about how Jesus has saved my life. I'm going to tell you about how he has supplied need after need after need in our life. I'm going to tell you about how we were desperate and we prayed and God showed up and he moved. And you set up memorials over and over and over again. You read scriptures in the Old Testament. They would set up memorials and they would walk by stones and stones would be stacked up. I literally walked by some stones that were stacked up on a hiking trail this weekend, and when I looked at it, I said, what's that mean? And that's what they're saying in the Bible. They're saying, make these memorials so that when your kids pass by, they say, what's the meaning of this? And you have a story to tell. What are you telling your children? What has God done for you in your life? You have to tell them these stories so that they have a vision for who they are. And it's a long game vision. Let me tell you something, folks. These are little commitments that take place day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. You may not feel like anything is happening with those small little commitments that seem like nothing at all. But I'm telling you, it's a long game vision. It's a long path with daily small commitments that bring transformation. But you have to be prepared and know what to tell your children when they ask questions because they are going to come with questions. Josephus, who lived back in around the year 30 A.D., just after Jesus' death, he was was a Jewish historian. He said this, he said, Our ground is good. And we work it to the utmost. But our chief ambition is for the education of our children. We take most pains of all with the instruction of children and esteem the observation of the laws and the piety corresponding with them the most important affair of our whole life. Jewish people thought that the greatest member of their community was their children because they were not living merely for their generation They were living because they believed in the future generation of what God was going to do after they died. And what I've been saying is that what God has called me to, and I don't even know how I'm getting there, but what God has called me to is not just to do something great right here while I'm alive, but it's to do something so great. And I I don't think it's a proud prayer to pray to say, God, I want us to do something that two generations from now, 75 years when we're all in the grave, somebody says that's when they started this and that's why we're here today. That's not too bold of a prayer. I think that God is looking for somebody to say, we don't just want church as usual. We don't just want family as usual. We want to see a true generation change raised up in God, and we've taken the responsibility to make sure it happens in our homes. Amen. So the question is, what do you need to break off? In order for the next generation to have an altar to worship from, what do you need to break off? And that's important. Because I want you to understand that in moments of stress, you will default not to who you wish you could be, but who you've actually been formed to be. You understand what I'm saying? When the rubber meets the road, you're with your kids, you're training your kids, and you're in stressful situations, you're not just going to do what you wish you could be or or, or show them what you wish you could be. You're going to do what you have been formed to be, and this is why you have to deal with your past. You have to deal with your own childhood. You have to deal with your own pain and your own trauma and your own abandonment uh, that that your father gave you or whatever abuse that you went through. You have to look at your family history and say these generational curses. Jeremy told us on Wednesday that when he got married, he comes from a bloodline of people that, that, that are caught up in sexual immorality or adultery. And whenever he got married, his uncle says to him, he says, well, you can't breed a beagle to a beagle without getting a beagle. You're just a baker, and it's just going to be the same way with you. And you know what Jeremy said? Not on my watch. The generational curses of my father and his father and on down the line, I'm going to change what the name baker means. And we break off those generational curses and we say, just because my family's been up under the weight of that thing does not mean it's going to the next generation. It changes with me. You got a history of alcoholism, of anger, of abuse, of adultery, whatever it may be. You make a decision to say, in Christ, we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. Our family is no longer functioning under that. We're going to live under the blessing. We're going to tear down every false altar of worship. And we're going to build an altar of worship to the one true God in our home. And our kids are going to know who Jesus is. And they're going to live to worship Him. Amen. And so you've got to build... I like that golf clap it's like that's pretty it's decent clay in the book of Judges Gideon tears down his father's altar a false altar of worship and he builds a new altar of worship to the one true God that was one of the most dangerous things you could do in a patriarchal society but with the boldness of God he tore it down and he led the entire nation of Israel to deliverance The entire nation of Israel because he was willing to tear it down so we have to tear down some things we have to build some new things in our home but here's lastly what we've got to teach our kids we've got to keep teach our kids presence see it's not just about obeying rules or being a good person you need to share the gospel of Jesus with your kids and just because they've been saved and baptized they need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus They need to know about this man. They need to know that they were sinners before God, that they were broken, that they had a heart that was unregenerate, that was incapable of loving God, but Jesus came after them. And he offers them salvation and redemption because he died on the cross for their sins. And he was raised again from the dead on the third day to give them eternal life. And that one day they will be raised again from the dead and they will stand before God on judgment day. And if they know Jesus, they will stand before him clean and washed and inherit eternal life in a new kingdom that lasts forever. You need to tell them that. But see, we need to understand that they need to know God's presence. It's one thing to know a bunch of rules and maybe even some VBS Bible verses. But you need to have worship at home. I don't care if you have music going, but you need to understand they need to have a concept of the power of the Holy Spirit. They need to have a concept of formation, number two, how the Holy Spirit and the Word of God transforms you and makes you a new person. That you can't just be a good boy on your own. You need a relationship with God. You need to see that the the, the fruits of the Spirit are being cultivated in their hearts. They don't just need to be good boys and girls. They need to know Jesus. And thirdly, they need to know His mission. You need to tell them Jesus loves these people out here. He loves that person and jesus is inside of you and he's called you to take that love and take this same message message to those same people we teach our kids this we're going to see the next generation come out much stronger than we currently are and that's what we want to see we don't want so many churches stories of them they they thrive in a period and then now they're just dying just dying out and we don't want to see that we want to see it better year after year after year because we intentionally raise up disciples in our home. Amen. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me. I believe God's given us an invitation to break off generational cycles and generational curses. And for some of you, just like what Jeremy was sharing with us on Wednesday, it's time to forgive some people that have hurt you. It's time to maybe even forgive your mom or forgive your dad. Forgive people who have spoken careless words over you and brought trauma and pain into your past and to release them because until you forgive them, you're not going to experience healing. But Jesus wants to say over you and over your family, I want to bring salvation. I want to bring redemption. And if you will let me walk into the wounds of your past and heal those wounds from your own childhood, then I can begin to build a new altar. I can help you to build a new altar in your own home so that it doesn't reflect the same things that you experience. And so, Lord, we just pray right now. We come to you. Maybe some of you, you're just coming to Jesus for the first time and saying, Lord, I need you, and I need salvation myself. If that's you, as an act of faith, would you raise your hand and let me know? That's me. I want to come to Jesus for the first time and say, I I need to be saved. I want to know Jesus. Anybody, anybody in the room? Praise the Lord. For the rest of us, here's what I want to pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you, God, for who you are. And Lord, right now, we forgive those who have hurt us. Lord, we invite you into the memories of our own childhood, of our own past, to heal pain, to heal trauma, to break every generational curse that's been handed down to us. And Lord, I pray that we would begin to walk in the blessing and in the favor of God. And, Lord, you would teach us to have a compelling vision of who you truly are, that, Jesus, we would know you, that our kids would know you, that we'd be able to talk about you when we rise up and when we lie down and cast a compelling vision to our children that, Jesus, you are the most beautiful thing. You are the most amazing person that has ever existed. You are God in the flesh, and you've come to save a broken world. Help us to cast a compelling vision. And Lord, help us to have a vision for discipleship and how we raise our children and how we pour the Word of God into them and how we teach them to love your presence and worship you, God, and to be men and women of prayer, God, and to walk in spiritual power and be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, God. We want to see these things and we pray that everything that is not of you, God, you would come and break off now in Jesus' name. Lord, we open our hearts to you this morning. And we just ask you to come in power to do this work in our hearts and in our families that only you can do. In Jesus' name.